Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Grind me into powder, if you wish. Every bit of my broken bone will be the seed of a resistor. These words were written by political prisoner Lin Zhao in 1965 in communist China. When Chairman Mao and his comrades forced their way into power in 1949, Lin Zhao was one of their most enthusiastic supporters. And yet, this young woman would ultimately be, as she prophesied, ground into powder by these same forces of change she believed would save China. Here to help us not forget the incredible and brave life of Lin Zhao is Professor Xilian, who has written the definitive biography of the martyr called Blood Letters. We will not only learn about Lin Zhao's story, but also get a history lesson on 20th century China, especially as it relates to attempts at reform, communism, Christianity, protest, and a hope for the future of democracy. We start our conversation by Professor Lin giving a brief introduction to his background. I was born and, and I uh, grew up in Fujian province in Fuzhou, Fu, Fujian. I did my undergraduate education there uh, at Fujian Normal University. I also did my master's there. And then I came in 1988 to this country to do my doctoral studies. And I have uh, devoted my, my career to studying Chinese Christianity, first by investigating the American missionary movement in China. Then uh, I went on to study the indigenous Chinese Christianity. So this Lin Zhao project was the latest. It has some connection to my um, earlier research on Chinese Christianity. So if you don't mind setting up the scenario for folks, especially how was Christianity, the state of Christianity in China before the communist takeover? Well, the modern Christian, particularly Protestant missions to China began in the early 19th century. And so by the time of the communist takeover in 1949, there had been almost a century and a half of early missionary efforts to spread Christianity in China. So by the turn of the 20th century, Christianity had begun to take hold uh, in China. And it had attracted not just a grassroots following It was a modest one by 1900, but it was also beginning to attract interest among the elite, including uh, the founder of the Chinese Republic, Sun Yisang, who was baptized by a congregational missionary. And so there was this small uh, emerging uh, phenomenon of the elite being attracted to Christianity, not so much for their personal salvation, but for the salvation of China. They were all imbued with this passion of saving China. Going back to Yong Wing, who was the first Chinese student to study in America, he came to um, study at, enter Yale at 1850. Um, so even then, there was this hope of saving China by embracing Christianity through through Christ. So Sun Yen uh, Sun was one who had very much looked to Christianity as a hope for China. And later on, even some of the early founding members of the Chinese Communist Party, including Chen Duxiu and Yun Daying uh, and Li Dazhao, some of the big names in the Chinese Communist movement, they were attracted, not necessarily to the uh, personal faith, in Christ, but rather to Christianity as holding out a promise for saving China. And later on, in the 1920s, we have this Christian general called Feng Yuxiang, uh, who also had his vision of saving China through Christ. How did they feel that Christianity would save China? As you said, it wasn't necessarily about uh, faith or winning souls, but maybe save the culture or the civilization? Well, China, as you know, after the Opium War, had become not only humiliated, it felt itself vulnerable. Chinese civilization was on the path of decay. And many intellectuals 
felt that the true rejuvenation of Chinese civilization would have to come from outside. Even some of the the Chinese secular elite, like Lu Xing, had found something deeply flawed uh, in the Chinese civilization. And even Lu Xing had called for a prophetic spirit to come from outside. So Christianity at the time, by the turn of the 20th century, was closely identified with Western civilization and with progress. So they looked to the Christian civilization as a way to save China. And I think we find that kind of thinking in Ling Zhao as well, uh, when she embraced Christianity uh, and, and was baptized later on. And that, that's a later story in the 1940s. Mr. Lu Xun once said, a road is what people make by treading. If there is not a first person, there will be no others, and there will be still no road. He who marks the road with his own blood for those coming after him will always, always earn our respect. Lin Zhao was not raised a Christian, but she ended up attending a Methodist school called the Laura Haygood Memorial School, and then eventually became baptized. Do we know much about her, I guess, her reasons for becoming a Christian during that time? We have limited information about that particular reasons for that decision, but it's not hard to imagine what was happening there. Uh, by the 1940s, the time when she entered Laura Haygood Memorial School, mission schools had really become a critical part of the Chinese education in general. There were some uh, mission schools or universities that have very high reputation, St. John's University in Shanghai and then the Yanjing University in, in Beijing. So again, Christianity was identified with progress, with um, with science and even democracy. And um, so Lin Zhao came to Laura Haygood, and by that time, religious observance, chapel attendance, extra, uh, etc., they were becoming optional. They had become optional after 1927. So that is to say that Lin Zhao's decision to be baptized as a Christian was entirely voluntary. While earlier on in mission education in China, uh, Bible study or chapel attendance may have been compulsory, that was no longer the case. So apparently she found in Christianity uh, something that she deeply, that deeply resonated with her. Uh, there was this religious side she had written at the age of 15, uh, a piece that revealed how she was drawn to a, a, a picture of Mary and uh, how that evoked deep religious uh, emotions inside her. So there's something uh, deeply personal in her embrace of Christian faith. But I think even more importantly is how she had identified Christianity with Christianity with progress. What I find intriguing about this, and it's something that is a hot topic today, is the mixing of Christianity with, however you want to call it, Marxism, communism, socialism. And this was apparent at the Laura Haygood School, where several of the teachers were, I guess, secretly communist. And as far as we can tell, they converted Lin Zhao to that faith as well. Can you explain that? This, again, was not an unusual phenomenon by the 1940s. It had begun even earlier, by the 1920s. In its infancy, the communist movement in China had attracted some of the most progressive and patriotic uh, young people uh, to its ranks. So the line between this faith in, in Christ, in uh, in, in the Christian message of, of salvation and the faith in communist uh, salvation for China, that line wasn't always clear. And so what, so what happened is that many of the mission school uh, students, this is one of the historical ironies, their exposure to modern style mission education uh, also meant that they were exposed to ideas of nationalism and, and, and 
many of them then went on to to join the communist movement because communism um, was providing a real alternative to this very corrupt and very chaotic uh, situation in China and very corrupt government under Chiang Kai-shek. And so communism held out this promise of real systemic change, uh, building a new social order. And um, and that's why many of the young, both students and uh, young, some of the young teachers in some of these mission schools were secretly uh, attracted to communism. Do we know much about uh, Lin Zhao's teachers, especially the ones that were pushing communism? Were they acting as just individuals on their own, I guess you would say, reconnaissance? Or was they were they part of a larger progressive Christian network within the Methodist Church? There was not an established Christian, uh, communist network within the Methodist Church or any other mission church. What happened was a phenomenon of... Um, it's a combination of two things. Number one is how the communist movement operated underground after its this brutal suppression of, of, of the communist uh, movement in 1927 and, and, and uh, after that. So throughout the 1930s and, and, and then into the 1940s, you have these communist cell groups uh, operating underground, uh, particularly when they were hunted down by the nationalist government. So they had these uh, groups operating underground and they these groups typically they would go to schools they identify students as the most likely body a group of people to be open to communist influences so that's what happened with with uh laura haygood both lin zhao's missionary teacher and later on lin zhao's chinese uh classmates had revealed this reality of uh communist members carrying on this clandestine operations within mission schools. So later on, after Lin Zhao joined the Communist Party, she herself, uh, by agitating for observance of the International Women's Day, that was part of that communist activity, uh, underground activity. Maybe you can help explain for folks, you know, they see the conundrum of Christianity embracing Marxism. They don't see how it could be done, especially because Marxism if you read Karl Marx's words, he advocates for the eventual eradication of a religion. So can you explain, maybe in all sincerity, how those two things were mixed together without any kind of conflict? Yes. Now, in our time, it is unthinkable to see that communism as being you know, blended in some way with Christianity. And what you just said about communism being ultimately hostile to religion, and that, that is all true. But what happened is that Communism, the communist movement, uh, packaged the ideology differently during the Republican era, which is uh, the half century, roughly the half century before the communist takeover. Communism was mostly packaged as a way to bring about fundamental social change, to put an end to this system of exploitation, of unequal uh, distribution of wealth. So it was an alternative to this systematic evil. It was a way to put an end to the systematic evil, to the systemic evil. And that's how those Christian, young Christian patriots who embraced communism, that's how they saw the, that communist movement. I don't think they necessarily pursued the communist ideology to its logical end and exhausted uh, all the implications of communist movement. What was most pressing and most obvious, paramount at the time for them was this this communist movement uh, was a real weapon to use against this evil, this oppression that's inherent in the, um, in the Chinese uh, society. And it is also important to know that it was not just this young, naive, Chinese uh, patriots uh, who were who were Christians and then who were attracted to communism out of ignorance. Even very seasoned Western missionaries in China became attracted to the communist movement. In my book, I mentioned that um, one of those missionaries was uh, by the name of Maud Russell, who went to China as a YWCA missionary and then got involved in the uh, the YWCA's work 
to help the urban industrial workers. So they saw firsthand the plight of the Chinese labor force. They saw the exploitation. And to them, people like Maud Russell, uh, communism was the real answer to China's problems. And I can quote you another a very revealing passage from a, um, again, a, a seasoned, a veteran missionary by the name of John Rawlinson. He went to China as a fundamentalist missionary, as a Southern Baptist missionary. By the 1930s, he had found himself really drawn to communism. And uh, I, I can read to you what a short passage from a letter that he wrote to his own children. And we can trust the genuine, the authentic feelings that he was sharing here. Okay. This is a, from a letter that he wrote in 1934. He said he, he was, uh, this is a letter to his children. He, he wrote this from, from Shanghai. I and mine are caught just between the old capitalist system and that of a system in which the goods of life are distributed more equitably. I am living in an ethical and economic no man's land. I get my support largely from those still within a capitalistic system in which I certainly no longer believe. On the other side are the toilers without economic security where I ought to be, but don't go. I mean, he, he felt this profound moral dilemma when it comes to his own implication in the capitalist system and his, um, for the time being, his inability to fully join uh, the communist movement. So you can you can imagine the, the Chinese, young Chinese Christians had no such burden as Rawlinson had, and they felt completely clear conscience to join, to join the communist movement. Right. You know, from a Christian point of view, communism does seem to promise a, a kingdom of God on earth, you know, equality, brotherhood of, of man and all that. But I guess... We had the gift of hindsight. We, we saw how it all ended, where they, at that time, did not see where it was going, I guess. Absolutely. As a Christian, my life belonged to my God. I have come to see more clearly and deeply the many terrifying and shocking evils committed by your demonic political party. I grieved and wept for them. Yet even when I touched the darkest the most terrifying, the bloodiest, the most savage center of your power. I did not completely overlook the occasional sparks of a humanity in you. Most likely, you will feel quite indifferent when you read this line. But as I read this, hot tears are rushing into my eyes. Gentlemen, those who enslave others can never be free. In 1949, Chairman Mao and the Communist Party take over China, and pretty soon after that, they start cracking down on all religions, not just Christianity. Can you describe what that looked like? Well, yes. Now, first of all, when the Communist Party took over China, for the time being, they promised basically a status quo for the, the Chinese uh, society and in, in, in the urban society. In the rural area, they were conducting uh, what was called the rural reform, land redistribution and all that. And, but in the urban area, uh, they most, most of the time, they tried to reassure people that things would, um, would continue as uh, the, the normalcy uh, would be maintained and religious activities would actually continue. So actually, there was no immediately evident signs of rupture uh, in 1949. Of course, what the communists had in mind is absolutely clear. It has always been clear to the communist leaders that their movement uh, was incompatible with religion, with organized religion. All organized religion would pose a threat to the communist system. So they had to bring uh, all religion uh, under its control. But it was, a, was meant, I think they, they, they planned it as a gradualist sort of uh, project, a process rather. But then came 1950, the Korean War. And so basically China and America found themselves 
fighting on the opposing side, and both sides started um, freezing the assets of the other. And in China, what that meant was that all the missionary assets, hospitals, universities, schools, and even later on churches, uh, they were all brought under this uh, tight government control and, and uh, frozen and uh, basically confiscated or property, church properties are uh, confiscated. And so that sort of sped up this process, mm. which would have come anyway, uh, the process of nationalizing uh, all the religious properties and, and, and bringing religion fully under this control. Now, the, the Communist Party had less trouble with the, by this time, uh, indigenized uh, religions of China, meaning uh, Buddhism, uh, which even though it began as a foreign religion, and it had not pro- had no problem with Confucianism or, or Taoism, but Christianity presented a real problem because of its Western ties. So the government then had to go through this this process of forcing the the churches to all the churches, denominational churches, to be combined to come under the control of a new organization uh, that was formed after uh, the outbreak of Korean War. And that was the call the three self movement, uh, self support, self government, and um, self propagation. Uh, But it sounds, you know, it sounds good enough. But in reality, it what it meant was that the party was going to have its apparatus to fully control the Christian churches. And that was completed first with the the Protestant churches by about 1954. The old institutions were gone uh, with the Catholic Church by 1957. So all forms of Christianity uh, uh, were brought under party control uh, by the late 1950s. So the actual persecution was more during the Cultural Revolution? The persecution came in waves. So there were, in the, in the 1950s, there were so-called denunciation meetings. Uh, so there was uh, particularly uh, in response to the, um, to the Korean War. Uh, so missionaries would be uh, denounced at public meetings, and uh, most of them would be expelled, a few imprisoned. So that was the first wave. And many Chinese also were, ha- were forced to, to denounce their past and their past associations with, uh, with Western missions. Then 19 came 1957 and 58, uh, the Great Leap Forward, and um, then the churches were forcibly combined. But then, yes, you're right, the full um, persecution of churches broke out uh, in, in full force in, uh, after the the launch of the Cultural Revolution in 1966. In your book, you point out one way that Christianity influenced Chinese communism was the act of self-repentance, or as the CCP would call it, self-criticism. Can you first describe what a self-criticism session would you know look or sound like? Who was required to participate, and how did communism come to adapt this practice in the first place? Well, we have some information from uh, from Lin Zhao's writings and and about those what those uh, study sessions where criticism and self criticism uh, were sort of kind of ritual revolutionary ritual. How how they look like? These will be small groups. It can be uh, a group among the land reform a land reform team or what they call the unit, uh, a work unit, um, or in, in the schools, there'll be, you can easily imagine classes being a unit where they would, they would do these small uh, group studies. They were, these were political studies. And one way to keep up the, the pressure or the heat of these, of, the politi- of these political studies was to engage in the, uh, what was called as criticism and self-criticism, where you would bear your thoughts to the party. Uh, that was the idea. And so it was not so much about what wrongs you have done, because many of these you know, young students, young communist activists had, had a few opportunities to, to, to do something terribly wrong. But it was more about bearing your bourgeois thoughts, the remnants of those bourgeois sentiments. Like Lin Zhao, for instance, she was again and again forced to renounce her parents, her family connections, the fact that her father has served as a county magistrate 
under the old regime. The fact that her mother had been a, a delegate to the first Chinese uh, the National Congress uh, that was under the national re- regime in the late 1940s, and, and how she had valued her family ties, how she had failed to completely break off um, with her counter, with her reactionary family. It's those kind of things uh, to purify your mind. Now, the connection between this kind of uh, study sessions, this criticism and self-criticism and the church, is not always clear. Now, we do have some uh, historical evidence showing that there was some kind of inference. For instance, one of the the earliest communist leader called Yun Daying, he had attended YMCA summer conferences where apparently there were, he observed some kind of Christian confessions of, of sins and all that, uh, prayer meetings and all that. So he brought it back to the some study sessions among those progressive uh, young people, believing that that is a, is a very good way to purify one's mind, to dedicate themselves to the revolution. But I think a more systematic way for this uh, for this revolutionary ritual to be introduced to the communist ranks in China uh, that came from the Soviet Union. Uh, it was that uh, since uh, the Mao Mao's revolution uh, pattern itself model itself um, on the uh, Soviet revolution, it borrowed many of these revolutionary rituals there. From, from there as well. It's funny, one of the things that always made me nervous growing up in church, I don't think our church did it this much, but I'd go visit another church with a friend, and they would do kind of this thing where people sit in a circle and they would talk about things they were struggling with. And in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, like, if, if I say what I'm really struggling with, what's to stop them from using it against me? Yeah, it's just a thing you think as a kid. Also, you want to avoid embarrassment. But in China's case, that really did haunt some people later because I guess some of these confessions got written down or got put into a file. Well, you know, you mentioned that you were you were concerned that some of those things, if you have said them in the group, that would be used against you. It was actually institutionalized um, in, in, in within the Chinese communist movement to be used against every individual. They were not only forced to every one of them to make criticisms and self-criticism. Of course, they were also encouraged to attack one another, you know, to criticize one another, to purify um, one another. They have to bear their thoughts, uh, their deep, deepest emotions. If they had put their own romance before revolution, that was also a crime against the revolution. And then they were made to write journals. In Yan'an, for instance, uh, there was a rectification campaign. Everybody who had joined the communist movement, many of these, most of these were, you know, idealistic urban youths who had gone to this very remote, barren place to join the communist revolution. They were made to keep daily journals of their thoughts. And then it was stipulated that the, the, their Lingdao uh, uh, or their, their leaders of, at various uh, levels had the right to inspect their journals uh, without notice. So the party needs to know every thought you have in the deepest corner of your mind. After the communist takeover, this is where it gets a little confusing for me, I guess. Lin Zhao appears to abandon Christianity and embrace communism completely, but then it seems like she returns to the faith, begins to question Marxism, and then eventually rejects Marxism altogether. Can you help sort all that out? It was a long process, and it was a torturous process. Now, first of all, Lin Zhao, after she joined the communist movement, and particularly in 1949, came the communist victory, and um, she then went to a party journalism school to be trained as a party uh, journalist and propagandist. At that point, she drifted away from church, from regular Sunday worship attendance, but there is no evidence that she ever abandoned the faith itself. What happened is that during the 19, early 1950s, it was incompatible. Uh, whatever religious observance was incompatible 
with one's dedication to the communist revolution. By that time, it was very clear to everybody that the, the communist revolution is, is an atheist revolution, and religion is seen as kind of a backward and feudal. Therefore, that is something that you need to shed. And um, I don't think Lin Zhao ever abandoned her faith, but it was inconvenient, to say the least, for her to have any external uh, religious observance. So what seems to have happened is that during the first part of the 1950s, she no longer uh, went to church. But then came 1957, uh, came the, um, the anti-rightist movement. And now we begin to pick up uh, evidence that Lin Zhao still remain a devoted Christian. There was once then, you know, after she was denounced and she was uh, having these long chats with friends and someone, was, a, f- a fellow writist uh, has said something against Christianity and Lin Zhao said, don't, don't you say anything against my religion, and I, I'm a Christian. Mm. And, and then she started going to one of the few remaining churches um, in Beijing regularly. So that was a uh, sort of rekindling of her earlier religious devotion. Mm-hmm. And with her, with regard to her belief in communism, even in, in her very earliest uh, years in the communist movement, when she was in this party-run journalism school, and then she went to work on a land reform uh, work team, she began to see the hypocrisy of the communist movement the corruption, uh, the abuse of power by those petty party cadres. And what is interesting is that even though that devastated her in in some way, at least it devastated her idealism in, in in, in the communist movement, somehow she was able to hold on to her belief in communist revolution uh, she held on to her belief in, in Mao. She still called Mao her dear father uh, because she was able, at the time, she was able to sort of make a distinction between this lofty ideals of communism on the one hand and this shoddy practice on the other hand by those cadres at the lower levels. And she was able, so she was able to hold those two intentions throughout most of the 1950s. But then came 1957, the anti-rightist campaign, where Mao made it abundantly clear that in the communist movement, there was no room for individual freedom, for, for people to speak their mind, and, and that the party discipline and its, uh, this uh, autocratic control would have to be enforced. That was the, the point of her disillusionment, complete disillusionment with the communist movement. And um, there was no wavering um, after that. Eventually, Lin Zhao, this young girl who, by all outward appearances, is loyal to the Communist Party, and yet the same entity imprisons her. Why was that? Well, she was in prison because the role that she played in the launch of an underground journal. You know, in 19... 57 came the anti-rightist campaign that silenced everybody, uh, all the intellectuals in China. In 1958, Mao launched the Great Leap Forward, which then led to this unprecedented man-made famine in Chinese history. Um, At least 36 million people starved to death. And so this massive destruction of lives and property and loss of, um, of, of lives and property in the throughout China. Lin Zhao by that time had been denounced as a rightist. Somehow she linked up with some fellow rightists in a hinterland part of China, in Gansu province. Uh, those were some of the university students from Lanzhou uh, University who were being exiled to the countryside and there they saw the the ravage of this uh, Mao's ruinous uh, economic policy in the countryside. They saw starvation. They found evidence of, of cannibalism. And so they were burning with this hope to expose the realities of this ill-designed policy of, of Great Leap Forward. And so Lin Zhao contributed to the launch of this underground journal. Of course, 
that was a um, a serious crime to to launch underground journal. Lin Zhao not only helped do that, she also contributed uh, two long poems that was sort of a Lin Zhao's own manifesto against communist movement. Uh, one of the poems was called Prometheus Day of Passion, so in which she mocked Mao as this villainous zoos uh, trying to put out the fire of freedom that had been stolen from heaven. And so it was because of, of that uh, poem and her role in this uh, underground journal called Spark of Fire that she was uh, put into prison. Uh, she was arrested in 1960. Then she had a brief medical parole in 1962. And then she was thrown back into prison after that. As a Christian, I wish to plead with all the Christian churches and the Holy See in Rome. Judge the multitude of suicides in mainland China with fairness. Do not view all the suicide of the victims of communists as spiritual evil. God's gift of life should have been in itself beautiful. Therefore, it is a sin to lightly dispose of it. But it is precisely in order to protect the beauty, dignity, freedom, and purity of life. The multitudes of victims in China have forsaken the precious lives in resolute protest against the defilement and trampling of life. I imagine the Heavenly Father will not necessarily pronounce their suicide sinful, but will instead pardon the afflicted soul with compassion. The title of your book, of course, is Blood Letters. Can you explain what this means in regard to Lin Zhao? I chose the title Blood Letters because she actually she wrote her letters in blood. Not just letters, her poems, essays, and even a, um, a play uh, she wrote in her own blood. It first began as a matter of necessity after she was interrogated. She was put in the, into Shanghai number one detention house where they have this brutal torture to uh, extract uh, any confessions that they could. So Linda was tortured. She was um, handcuffed behind her back and she attempted suicide uh, under the circumstances. She could not put up with the, with the torture. And before, just before her uh, attempted suicide, she wrote a four-character uh, rhyme. It's a, uh, an ancient form of Chinese poetry called Si Yan Shi. Each line has four characters. As you can imagine, that was um, probably as much as she, as she could manage uh, with her hand tied behind her back. And pen and paper uh, had been taken away from her. So the only thing she had to write with was her own blood. So she poked her finger, wrote the four character rhyme on a shirt. And uh, so that's how her blood writing began as far as we have the historical evidence for. And later on, she kept up her blood writing, both when paper and, and pen uh, were taken away from her. So out of necessity, and even when she did have stationery, there were points when she decided that blood writing was the only available form of protest to her, and she would resort to that. And that's why her blood writings in prison totaled more than 200,000 characters between about 1963 and 1968 when she was executed. Can you explain why they had to execute her and also how they did it? Now, first of all, Lin Zhao was put through a long process of pre-trial detention. But then in May of 1965, she was sentenced. She was found guilty as a counter-revolutionary and she was sentenced to 20 years in prison. So that was her initial sentence. So under normal circumstances, this would have happened to her. 
as it did to countless other Chinese who had found themselves on the wrong side of the of the Chinese revolution. They would have been silenced and then rotted away in prison or somehow survived their prison sentence. And eventually, you know, after Mao's death, they were released or from prison or from labor camps. That did not happen to Lin Zhao because she was, she was unusual in how she responded to her sentence. Her first response to her sentencing was to write a commentary on the back of the ver- of the verdict, uh, in her own blood, calling this the the, um, the this verdict, it's denouncing this this, this verdict and uh, say this this is I despise it, but I'm I'm proud of my sentence, uh, of as uh, I'm proud of myself as as as, as counter revolutionary. So she was unrepentant from the very first moment, and that refusal to repent was really what what got to her but then in in prison she continued to um openly oppose not just her own sentence not just denounced sentence she opposed openly the communist ideology the communist system in general she she called it a a totalitarian a fascist a totalitarian regime she denounced mao as a dictator and uh, this was unusual at a time when throughout China, all intellectuals have been silenced. And so the, the prison uh, in Shanghai, the Tilanqiao prison, really did not know what to do with that. And because she carried on this desecration of the communist revolution, desecration of Mao, Mao's image uh, that she found on uh, newspapers that was applied to her for political study, for her thought reform. She defied, she defied all that. And so it was because of that refusal to, to repent and that, that sacrilege that she was, um, she was, that sentence was changed. I can, I can read you a little bit from this, uh, the prison report, uh, submitted, uh, in the December of 1966. Uh, she was eventually executed in 1968, April 1968. But by December of 1966, the prison had this, had really concluded that this is someone who cannot be reformed. And so they file a, um, a report to the uh, uh, labor uh, called Reform Through Labor uh, Bureau of Shanghai in which they listed Lin Zhao's crime. And I'll just read you a, a, a short passage and you get a sense of that. It says, during her imprisonment, Lin Zhao poked her flesh countless times and used her filthy blood to write hundreds of thousands of words of extremely reactionary, extremely malicious letters, notes and diaries, madly attacking, abusing and slandering our party and its leader. And so she, she called it, and it goes on to say how she called the, the system a totalitarian regime and all that. Mm-hmm. So that sacrilege was just too much for the uh, for this revolutionary uh, regime, uh, for, for Mao's regime to bear. So eventually they turned her 20-year sentence, prison term, uh, changed that to the death penalty. So the Communist Party in China, and I think there's other regimes that have done this as well, they had this method of after they execute someone they charge the family for the bullets they send them a bill can you explain why what's the psychology behind that money was not the issue the issue was humiliation mm-hmm. and i was i think in a way it was also seen as a, a sort of a, a purist ritual of the communist revolution which also always saw itself as as lofty as having this lofty ideal and pure revolutionary ideals, it always was bent on purifying its ranks. And then what do you do with the, the filthy the counter-revolutionaries that have been purged from the revolutionaries, purged from, from that or have, has to be purged from China? Uh, you have to drive home the point to the family that these, that the counter-revolutionaries who have been executed these were the excrements uh, of the society, and they need to be purged. And so the, the bullet fee was really a way to, to, to purge them from the Chinese society. And uh, you're not even worthy of the five cent bullet. 
And so your family has to pay for the bullet to have you purged from this revolutionary land. 被捕七年，岁月如烟，家国在怀，兴亡在肩，肝肠饥饿，一往无前，大义凛冽，大节交人，真金入火，火石金险，孤军力战。碧血日鲜，心悲气壮，一决之间，公道为止，正义当先，有我无敌，奇迹生全，中华民国缔造维艰，崇光法统后起着边，一身未息，要读史篇。乾坤宗社，雄波海天，人生自古谁无死，留得清明满世间。Then later on in the early 1980s, I think it was Lin Zhao. Even though she's been dead for over a decade, she's put back on trial. Can you explain that to again to Westerners who have no concept of a, a, a deceased person being put back on trial again? Well, what happened was that Mao died in 1976. By 1978,、uh, Deng Xiaoping was、uh, back in power, and so and then he followed was the、um, a, a new era of of reform and opening, and so as part of this. Uh, new efforts、uh, toward reform and opening. The party would have to realize that it had wrongfully persecuted so many Chinese throughout the decades of Mao's revolution. So there would have to be political rehabilitation, and that was what what it was called: political rehabilitation. People's names would have to be restored, and in some cases, some compensations would have to be paid. And so this was a nationwide movement. At Peking University, where Lin Zhao was a student when she was denounced as a rightist, they went through this process of so-called removing the hats of rightists,、um, because everyone who was denounced as a rightist、uh, initially, they were given each a, a sort of a hat of a, a rightist hat. So that hat would have to be removed. And so it was really as part of this larger movement that Lin Zhao was rehabilitated. And the way it happened is that in 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 Shanghai, the Shanghai High People's Court was reviewing so many cases of wrongful persecution throughout the Mao era, particularly during the Cultural Revolution. Many teams of judges. And their assistants were formed to review these cases, beginning with some of the larger, bigger cases. So Lin Zhao's case was actually reviewed twice. First in 1980, and they pronounced her innocent, that the verdict and the execution was wrong. But then again in 1981, there was a second review, and again the the High People's Court confirmed. That、uh, it was a case of wrongful persecution, and so she was cleared of all her crimes. It's during that time that her prison writings, which had never been destroyed, they had been filed away as part of the evidence against her、uh, in her counter-revolutionary、um, case. So those prison writings were returned to the family after she was cleared of all her crimes, of all the charges. Those materials did the family make those public, and did you actually physically get to touch some of these blood letters? The materials, Lin Zhao's writings uh, themselves, uh, there's a there's a long story, uh, complicated story with the um with the journey of those writings. To make it short,、yeah. Lin Zhao's sister eventually was able to bring her prison writings, not all of them, most of them, to the United States. After she emigrated to the United States, and eventually by 2009, she had deposited at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. 
So I was able to visit Hoover Institution to view those writings. But the Hoover, the way it's set up, it uh, there are many restrictions. You are not allowed to actually touch the original papers. Uh, Hoover's Hoover Institution make copies of them, and there were also digital copies available. Uh, within the this, it's not online. It's within the Hoover Institution in the, in the archives. You can view the, those writings and and you get a glimpse of the the physical features of the notebooks and, and and all that. And so those writings are now in the Hoover Institution, but they were not complete. There were other writings that her sister did not bring to to America, and they were back in China. And Lin Zhao's former classmates, friends, and some very dedicated friends, and and then researchers were able to put together and make copies of all uh, Lin Zhao's uh, available Lin Zhao's writings, both including everything that's in the Hoover Institution, the copies of, of of those, and the the writings that were left behind in China. They were able to put them together, edit them into this collection of Lin Zhao's uh, writings, and I was able to use that collection uh, for the writing of this book. Is there anything that the CCP is still keeping in a file that hasn't been released? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, an important question that came up in my interview with a judge who presided over the review of Lin Zhao's uh, of case uh, during the nineteen eighties. He explained. That, as in all other cases, as in all the cases, uh, there were two separate files on Lin Zhao. One was called the primary file, one was the secondary file. So whatever was returned came from that secondary file. Now, what was put in into the primary file were her interrogation records. This long months that Lin Zhao had to endure inside. Shanghai's number one detention house, where there was torture and, and, and confessions, those interrogation records were all put into the primary file, and I strongly suspect that many of Lin Zhao's earliest uh, blood writings also found their way into that primary file, but they are locked away, regardless of of whatever rules, published rules. Uh, in, in China, which typically uh, means that the uh, those files can be released after fifty years. Now it's more than fifty years; they don't apply. They are still locked away at the secret location. It's part of the classified uh, files, and that's the way the the system, the communist system, works. It's it's fearful of confronting the past. Seven years have gone by since my arrest. Those years. Like a passing clouds, I have lost them all. My country remains in my heart, still a burden on my shoulder. Talk about what Lin Zhao means to both Christians today and the you know non-religious pro-democracy movement inside and out of China, and also. Uh, can you talk about her gravesite and how it's become a place to pilgrimage, but also a point of contention for the Communist Party? Yeah, no, no, ironically, even though Lin Zhao was a devoted uh, Christian, it's very clear from her prison writings, her influence has been the greatest among the secular, the elite, the democracy uh, champions of democracy of Chinese uh, of civil society in China. So, for instance, Liu Xiaobo, the late Nobel Peace Laureate. Calling Zhao the only voice of freedom for contemporary China, wow! And so she has become an inspiration for the democracy movement in the in the post Mao era, particularly after two thousand four, when a documentary film was made about Lin Zhao. That film was called "Searching for Lin Zhao's Soul" by an independent filmmaker Hu Jie, and that really helped bring to life. Her story, because of that, Lin Zhao became a household name. Not ironically, not for the, the Christian community, uh, but household name among the educated elite、um, in China, particularly those who care about、uh, civil society, who those who dream of a democratic future of China. 
Because of that, year after year, since particularly since 2008, uh, the year of the Beijing Olympic, people have been coming to Lin Zhao's tomb every year on April the 29th, which is the the anniversary of Lin Zhao's execution. Uh, she was shot in the in the prison. So every year on April 29th, people would come from um, across China, those pilgrims, to try to make their pilgrimage to Lin Zhao's uh, burial ground to pay their tributes. And also since 2008, the, the Chinese government realized how sensitive, how symbolic and sensitive Lin Zhao's tomb had become. So a surveillance camera was first installed in 2008, just above Lin Zhao's grave. So when I visited the, her, her, her grave, you know, I, I could stare into those um, surveillance cameras uh, <laughs> just, above, just above me. But now, 2018, which was the, the year when my blood letters uh, was published. And also that was the, the 50th anniversary of Lin Zhao's execution. By that time, there were dozens of surveillance cameras installed and police had installed an iron gate actually uh, to block a pathway leading to a tomb. And every year police would arrive uh, both undercover and the uniformed police would come to block the the way to her tomb and uh, to, to detain uh, pilgrims. And the, there was one pilgrim uh, called Zhu Chengzhi who made it public that he was paying a tribute to Lin Zhao on the 50th anniversary of Lin Zhao's uh, execution. He and two friends came to Lin Zhao's tomb. They tried to get there before, just before midnight, knowing that police would be in full force the next day. Still, he, he, got, he was able to crawl under the, the gate the Iron Gate, and eventually got to the tomb to lay a bunch of flowers. But the police arrived within 30 minutes, hauled him away. Uh, he was under secret detention for six months. And then he was tried and found guilty for inciting subversion of, of state power. And so he's now still in prison. Wow. Why do you think Chinese Christians haven't embraced Lin Zhao as much as the, the secular movements? Well, there's some Chinese um, Christian intellectuals, some who, who care about democracy in China, who care about issues of social justice, of, of political freedom. There is a, a small group of very articulate Christian intellectuals who have done a lot to keep Lin Zhao's legacy um, alive. But for the majority of Chinese Christians, um, we have to bear in mind that Chinese Christianity remains to this day a primarily a grassroots phenomenon. It used to draw a lot of a, a large percentage of its following from rural China. Now, with the urbanization of China, many of those migrants have have come to the cities um, to work in, in the cities on construction sites and and, and other uh, areas. Those grassroots Christians remain politically, shall I say, they mostly keep to their political apathy. And so so there is, on the one hand, there's simply a lack of interest in democratic movements, which is, of course, very dangerous. Mm. Um, so there's that. And then there's another factor. And, and that is uh, the Chinese Christianity, by and large, retained a very conservative theology, particularly in the among the older generation. And many of them who who subscribe to a conservative and individualistic uh, kind of spiritual spirituality, they see political involvement and participation as 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 simply secular, uh, as, as unspiritual, and so they'll rather not have anything to do with uh, with things that are secular. They want to keep to a more, should I say, purist and otherworldly kind of faith, and for that reason. Those people don't pay attention to Lin Zhao, but the among the the, the secular uh, democracy activists, there's increasingly not only a an absolute uh, admiration for Lin Zhao as a prophetic figure in 20th century China. She was a prophetess of um, of democracy and, and freedom and, and individual rights, but they also increasingly they recognize the religious roots of her political descent.
maybe this is more of a Catholic or Episcopalian thing, that those church organizations tend to recognize martyrs or saints, depending on how you put it. The Methodist church, I know books will come out where someone will be revered who might have been a Methodist, but has the Methodist church ever recognized Lynn Jowes martyrdom or considered her part of their history? Well, I am hopeful that the day will come when the Methodist Church would recognize what a an incredible martyr they have had in Ling Zhao, someone who went through only two years of Methodist education. And she really bears witness to how much Methodist missions had accomplished in its early days. Now, Unfortunately, I think the Methodist Church is now busy with some of the more pressing issues. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and I have yet to realize how much they already have in, in Lin Zhao and what a rich part of its, of its legacy, of its history, uh, Lin Zhao's story is. Now, there was a, uh, I had a very nice interview with a, um, a reporter for United Methodist News, and he wrote a very careful uh, report, very extensive um, report on Lin Zhao, presenting Lin Zhao as, as a martyr. But uh, that's what I know so far. Uh, I'm also hoping I have tried to reach out to the some Methodist uh, women's organization to help to, uh, in the hope that they'll, re- they'll recognize what an extraordinary Methodist they have in, in Ling Zhao. And I, I believe that they will come when they re, when they will come to full realization of that, uh, of Ling Zhao's importance for the Methodist history. Well, on that same note, sometimes I notice when I talk to Christians about stories about Lin Zhao and other martyrs in other countries as well, there seems to be a, a lack of interest. And it's disappointing. And I know everybody has their own lives and their own worries and uh, maybe issues or causes that are more important to them. Have you been received well by the Western Christians about your book? Or have you been ignored? Or how, how has that went down for you? I'm happy to say that the uh, my book, A Black Letters, has received wide-ranging and very favorable, very strong reviews in the um, mainstream uh, media, you know, very strong, uh, a long review in New York Review of Books, and the um, this uh, I wrote contributed a um, an op-ed piece for the Wall Street Journal on on Lin Zhao's uh, uh, the, at the fiftieth um, anniversary of Lin Zhao's execution. Uh, that was shortly after my book um, came out. Has been uh, interviewed for New York Times and Los Angeles uh, review books, and among the, the Christian um, outlets, uh, Christianity Today, Christian Century, um, these two major periodicals um, in the uh, for for the Christians, and some some other Christian groups uh, have had review. Uh, some other um, religious outlets have reviewed uh, this book. So I'm grateful for the um, for the attention that it has received in in the West. And then last year, at Duke Divinity School, uh, the Duke Initiative in Theology and the Arts commissioned a musical piece dedicated to Lin Zhao. It was a a, a quartet. is a, a piece called Elegy, composed by a friend of mine who uh, is a major uh, composer, contemporary composer in in China, who is also a, a Christian. So he composed a piece called Elegy. And it was performed by um, a, a a trio from Boston Symphony Orchestra, and uh, along with my colleague pianist uh, Jeremy Beckby, and it was premiered at the, at, Duke, at Duke Divinity School. So I'm very pleased with that, and I'm I'm grateful for those who have recognized and and who have come to honor Lin Zhao. In the past several days, I have thought a lot, at times quite painfully, because I was reflecting deeply on my own mistakes. Some of them were because of my inexperience in struggle, which are easier to correct. Others have to do with the rashness in my own personality, which I have to examine in a fundamental way. In any case, generally speaking, I tend to be overconfident in handling various problems. This is a serious problem, especially for a Christian. 
there is too much of me. As a result, there is too little or almost nothing of the Lord. I form myself too much, and I forget my Lord. I forget that in my proper station I am but a servant. How hard it is for faith to come from the flesh. Has there been any official response by the CCP to the publication of your book, and has any more information surfaced since it's been released? I wish I know all that is going on inside China. This is a very、uh, secretive regime, and you don't know what's happening, what's not happening, who is on the blacklist, who is not on the blacklist. And so the short answer is I do not know. What I do know is that the the party will be very unhappy、uh, with this book, and、uh, particularly. When its、um, its Chinese edition、uh, comes out and a Spanish edition is coming out later this year, but I I just do not know how the party feels or think about、um, this book. So I, I just I would just have to wait and, and and find out. Hey, well, thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I'd like to thank Nan Nuts, who helped by reading some of Lin Zhao's writings for us. And if you're still in a mood for Chinese history, may I recommend in the corner back by the woodpile, 187, where Laszlo Montgomery of the China History Podcast gives us the history of old Shanghai pop music of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Or if you're curious about Chinese Christianity, episode 76 is a good one, featuring Dr. Minghuang, who talks about his struggles. During the Cultural Revolution and his eventual trek to America, finding much, including a new faith. In the corner, back by the woodpile, is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy@hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye bye. Thank、you